My name is Bryce, if we haven't had a chance to meet, um, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here in Pastoral Resident. I would love to uh, have the opportunity to get to meet you. Uh, once again, if, if you have copies of Scripture, we're in First Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, we have copies uh, on our community group table, on our welcome table that are yours. We would love for you uh, to have that. Take that with you. You don't have to tell anyone. Uh, just take it home and read it. Um, we're going to be First Corinthians chapter uh, nine, starting in verse one. We're continuing our journey uh, through the letter of First Corinthians, um, and we're seeing that we're far more like Corinth than we might even care to admit. Uh, the church in Corinth is uh, broken and dysfunctional in so many ways, in so many ways, and yet it's not too dissimilar from where we're at. And just like. God did with the church in Corinth. God meets us with grace and mercy and love in the midst of our brokenness. Now, last week in chapter 8, we saw that Paul addresses a group of Christians who are elevating their rights, their personal rights and their freedoms uh, over their brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically when it came to the topic of eating idol meat or food that had been offered to idols. Now, we talked about that's probably not a temptation for most of us in this room. And yet the principle still follows. There are things that God is calling us to lay our rights down in order that we might love and serve our brothers and sisters in the faith. And today, Paul is going to continue that argument, and he's going to give them an example. right? He's going to give them a personal example, and he's going to set forth himself as a picture of what it looks like to lay down your rights. Because it's one thing to tell someone else to lay down their rights. Right? It's one thing for me to preach and tell you, friends, lay down your rights for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ, or to tell someone else that. But it's another thing to actually do it yourself, right? another thing to actually have to lay these things down. And so while in chapter 8, Paul calls us to lay down our rights for the sake of others, for the, the love of others, in chapter 9, Paul's going to call us to lay down our rights for our love of God, and for our love of the gospel. Now, there's a lot here, um, and so we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Uh, normally, I've got three points, and then you're out of here. Uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to just walk through the text, specifically the first 14 verses. I'm going to read a verse, and then I'm going to unpack it. I'm going to read a verse and unpack it. Um, and the reason is I, I want us to see and remember that this is actually real people to whom Paul's writing. Real people who wrote a letter to Paul offering all these questions and all this pushback. And Paul is lovingly and patiently responding back. And so I, I want us to engage with that uh, a little bit. And what we're going to see is Paul is calling us to a greater vision of love for God. He's calling us to a different way of life. Right? They're calling us to look different from the world. And so that's what we're going to be uh, doing today. We're going to walk through the text we're going to look at what Paul's motivation was for laying down his rights and then what that means for us. And so I want you to, uh, uh, let's do something together. I want you to pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll dive into the text. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any sword out there. Um, and God, that you still speak through your word and through your spirit even 2,000 years later. And so, God, would you do through your word what my words can't? God, would you um, convict us of sin? Would you um, give comfort where we need comfort and encouragement? And would you conform us more and more into the image of Jesus? 
God, I pray and, and, and beg that the words of my heart and the meditation, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable to you. Amen. Amen. All right. So once more, if you have a copy of scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Paul starts off and says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our, Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So Paul's saying, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not a slave, am I? Hey, I'm an apostle, aren't I? Hey, haven't I seen the resurrected Jesus? Which in Acts 9, if we see Paul is on his way and Paul sees the risen Jesus who appears to him and it changes the trajectory of his life. Paul says, hey, hey, didn't I plant your church? Hey, aren't you evidence of my labor and work in Corinth? And these are all rhetorical questions. The answer is, yes, of course, Paul did all these things. So let's keep going. Verse 2. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Say, hey, others might not view me as an apostle. I, I might not be to them. But, but I've lived among you. I've worked among you. I planted your church. I built you up. You know me who I, for who I am. You've witnessed my work. So Paul's not only establishing his credentials, he's reminding them of the relationship he has with them as a pastor, as a shepherd. He's labored in love and preaching and shepherding and building the church. He's saying, hey, you know who I am. Others might not view me as an apostle, but, but I have been for you. Keep going, verse 3. It says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? So now he's switching. He's, saying he's going he's gonna to switch into his defense for his right to being paid as a pastor and as, as a minister of the gospel. He said, hey, don't I have the right to have my needs met? Sh- should I have to beg for my food? Right? Should I get paid so that I don't have to worry about where my ne- next meal comes from? Keep going, verse 6. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He's saying, hey, is what I do and apparently also Barnabas, so insignificant that I have to take up a side hustle to make ends meet. Is this not real work to you guys? Is it not real work that I should, that I should earn a wage? He goes on to say, hey, this is, not just, this is not just me talking. You actually see this principle active in the world. Verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? He's saying, hey, soldiers don't pay for their own food or for their own weapons or bullets. Their own food. If you serve your country, if you serve your people, uh, you're covered. You're, uh, it, it's, it's paid for. He's saying, hey, farmers have a right to taste of their produce, a right to drink of the vine and eat of the grapes. And I'm not a farmer by any means. I just recently learned what FFA was. It's a real thing. <laughs> Some of you were there when I found out. But if you raise cattle, no one accuses you uh, of drinking some of the milk or eating some of the beef, right? No one says, I knew it. He was in it for the steaks. That's why he's raising those cows. He's saying, hey, even your world understands this principle. And then he goes on, verse 8. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? He said, hey, even Scripture speaks to this. Even Scripture speaks to this. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, which is part of this larger section where God is laying down uh, the rights um, and, and, uh, of people to promote dignity and justice for humans. In the middle of two chapters where God is uh, telling, um, in the middle of two chapters where God is encouraging justice, we have this little verse, this little line where God tells Israel, hey, don't be cruel to your ox when they're plowing. Don't cruelly restrain an ox from eating the food that its own labor is making available. Since it's doing the work, the ox should be able to eat some of what it's threshing out. God's establishing law so that even work animals shouldn't be treated cruelly, should be treated fairly. And if God, listen, cares so much about ox and work animals, how much more so does he care for humans, people like you and me who are created in his image? How much more so does he care about the dignity and worth of people? And God is establishing principle not just for your farm animals, but for those who work. And here's Paul's line of, uh, of, of thinking. He's saying, if pastors work hard in ministry, they should be a pray, paid appropriately for ministry. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share the sacrificial offerings? He's saying, in other words, hey, even priests, both pagan and Jewish, get to eat from their labor. The animals that are brought to sacrifice, we talked about this last week, the animals that are brought to sacrifice, part of that, the priests get to eat. And finally, in case all that isn't enough, in case you're still not convinced, Paul comes in with the hammer. Verse 14, he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In case none of this other stuff convince you, right? Like my arguments, the examples in the world, the Old Testament scripture, um, just, just, just common sense. Hey, Jesus said that those who minister by the gospel should get paid by the, uh, from the gospel. He's quoting um, Luke 10, uh, Matthew 10, where Jesus sends out apostles to go preach the gospel um, and to do work of the kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, your food should actually come from this work, from your labor in ministry. And so now, if you're keeping count, right, if you've been reading along with me, if you're keeping count, Paul just asked 17 questions in 13 verses, all right? So let that just sit with you. Paul just asked 17, just bam, 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 17 questions in the first 13 verses. And he's grilling them with these rhetorical questions to drive home this point of his right to get a salary, of his right to be paid appropriately for his work as a minister, now, this passage has often been used in a variety of ways. It's been used by um, prosperity preachers as a reason as to why they should be making more, why they should get more, why uh, to justify their lifestyles, um, which is ironic considering where Paul is actually going to go with this. Um, it's been used by pastors who are angry at their current compensation package, right, and want to get paid more. But it's also been used by many churches to justify why they underpay their pastors, 
Some churches and groups have sadly used this to not pay ministers a, a livable wage or, or one that can support a family. As an aside, um, Paul's words provide us with a glimpse uh, or with a guide as to how we here at Frontline approach how we pay our pastors. We, we don't want to pay them lavish salaries, and yet we also don't want to keep families in poverty. We want to free up our pastors so that they can be a blessing uh, in the church and in the city so they can open up their homes in hospitality. And so the principle is clear. Pastors who labor hard in ministry ought to be rightly compensated for their work. But that's not the point that he's making here. This can sound like Paul is angry. Right? It can sound like Paul is just miffed that he's had years of back pay that he hasn't been paid, right? That, that, that he's ranting about what he's due, his rights, what he's owed. And so what would you expect the next line to be? Now pay up. Give me my money, right? In, in, in the, words of our, the words of the great philosopher of our day, Rihanna, church better have my money. You'd expect him to demand that they finally pay him what he's due. And he would be justified because he just made the point. He is due that. That is his right. But that's not what he does. Look at me, verse 12, the latter half of verse 12. He says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Jump with me to verse 15. He says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. See, after spending 14 verses making a pretty compelling case for why he should get paid, instead of demanding that the Corinthians pay up, pony up and pay his rights, Paul turns around and says, but I lay all that down. I lay all that down. Now, pause with me for a moment. Because last week we saw Paul encourage the Christians to lay down their rights for the sake of others. But, but these rights were luxuries. Right? He, he's calling, he was calling them to, hey, lay down your right or your freedom to eat meat that have been offered to idols. Lay down your right to, to go to these events or parties uh, where this is happening. Um, for us, the equivalent might be like, hey, lay down your right to watch that, or to participate in this activity. But Paul's not talking about his right to luxuries here, right? He's talking about his laying down his rights to livelihood, his right to earn a salary, his right to support himself, to put food on the table. Right? These are things that we might consider inalienable rights. So friends, the question is, what would make you lay down your rights to your inalienable rights. Or put another way, what, what drives you? What motivates you? What are you so obsessed with that you, you would give up your basic rights in order to get it? We regularly lay down things that uh, we value for things that we value more, don't we? We, we sacrifice things in hopes of, because there's a greater value at the end of it. So you, you might sacrifice part of your paycheck by putting it away in savings or a retirement because you value financial stewardship or you value your future. 
you might sacrifice um, a, your freedom to watch a show on a streaming device uh, in order to go to the gym because you value your health and well-being. I very regularly lay down my right to sleep when my child is crying, which is very often because I value my son more than I value uh, and his well-being over sleep. But what do you value over your right to a paycheck or your right to food? Look with me at Paul's answer again in verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you know what motivates Paul? Do you know what Paul is obsessed with? He's obsessed with Jesus and the gospel so much that he's willing to sacrifice his very livelihood. In other words, he's saying, you Corinthians are so concerned about your rights and your freedom and you're defending them so that you can exercise your rights for legitimate reasons, like eating idol meat. And Paul says, I'm defending my rights to actually do the opposite, to lay them down because there's something supremely more valuable than my rights and freedoms and my money, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. He goes on in verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? Do you want to know? Do you want to know what my reward is? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. But Paul is motivated by preaching a gospel that frees people for free. Paul is motivated by freely preaching a gospel of freedom in Christ. Paul was gripped by the surpassing worth of Jesus, of proclaiming the gospel, of depicting in his life and work the free nature of the grace of God that comes, and this grace comes and doesn't demand repayment. It lavishly bestows what you and I don't deserve. Because that's what Paul had experienced himself. Paul went from persecuting Christians and killing Christians to while he's on the way to kill some more Christians, Jesus shows up to him and radically changes his life. He gives him a new mission. He gives him a new identity. He gives him a new vision. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus found him. And when Jesus found him, Jesus doesn't say, all right, clean up your act, and then I can use you really well. You'll be known throughout history. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I need you to sort of make up for all the stuff that you did in the past, and then we can move forward. It was freely given. And in Christ, you and I get what we don't deserve. And yet, we often live in such a way, don't we, as if we're trying to repay or, or earn God's affection. I've got to make sure I obey really well this week so that, so, so that God doesn't punish me. Or, or I sinned last night, so I've got, to, I've got to do extra act of kindness today to kind of even it out. Friends, that's actually anti-gospel. You didn't earn God's favor, and so you can't do anything to lose his favor. And so what's motivating your obedience to Jesus? Why? Why are you following him this morning? Why are you following him? You're saying, God, God better give me a good family. God better give me more blessings. God better give me some grace, some wealth. Is it the reward of external affirmation that, that others might see you and see your obedience and think well of you? 
Is it because you think God will bless you more if you're obedient? Which is, by the way, fear. Do, do you want to know how you know you might be motivated by fear? You think that the negative things that come into your life are because God is punishing you. You think that the medical diagnosis or the traffic ticket or the pink slip or your child rebelling or God giving you something that you deserve for something you did. And friends, with the kindness of a pastor, can I offer that that's actually not Christianity. That's karma wrapped up in prosperity gospel. See, the hope of Jesus, the true reward is the joy of enjoying free grace of God in your life. And knowing that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate you from his love. Now this gospel is for anyone. It's for anyone, whether you've been coming to church for 40 years or, or you woke up this morning with yet another hangover, this gospel of freedom is for you. This gift of free grace is for you, and it's different. It's different from any other worldview or religion or philosophy out there. The reward for Paul and what's laid out for us is to see and savor and enjoy Jesus and to see and savor, uh, to see others embrace and savor Jesus. The danger for us can be to look at a passage like this and be like, wow, that is really impressive. That's really cool, Paul. And Paul, you're kind of intense, right? Paul, maybe you have the luxury of being obsessed with Jesus, but that's just not me. That's not my personality. That's not my personality type. Or I've, got, I've got a family. I've got a mortgage. I've got a career. I've, I've got some other things that I'm on my plate right now. From my family, this passage wasn't preserved for 2,000 years by the Holy Spirit. This passage isn't here so that we can marvel at Paul's motivation. So we can marvel at just how driven Paul was by the gospel. This passage is here to let you and I know what basic Christianity is. This isn't varsity Christianity. This isn't for the super Christians out there. This is basic following Jesus. To have him be the driving force in our life. To have Paul's motivation be our motivation to enjoy and savor Jesus and to see others know and enjoy him. And so this shouldn't just drive our Sunday mornings or, or our community group gatherings. Every Sunday we say, hey, there are six days between now and next Sunday, and there's six days that we, we would see and savor and enjoy Jesus. Six days of being bathed in a cherishing of the gospel and to see others know him. This is basic Christianity, friends, and if this seems intense or awkward or like, man, that's Jesus-free Christianity, it might be because we've traded true Christianity for something else. We've traded true Christianity for something that bolsters our rights and our worldviews and our ethics and our way of living. We've traded true Christianity, true life-changing, life-encompassing Christianity for motivational TED Talks and cultural morality. 
but basic Christianity is being gripped by the gospel so much that you would lay down your rights, even your livelihood, so that you might enjoy Jesus and make him known. Because, by the way, that's what Jesus did for you and I. Lay down his life. And this is why the early church couldn't be stopped. Early church couldn't be stopped. You, you read the books. You see how Christianity exploded in the early church. It's because they couldn't stop this movement. They would try to throw Christians into prison. And the Christians in prison would start worshiping God. And now others are getting to hear the gospel. And others are coming to follow Jesus. They say, well, we can't have that. Let's put him to death. Great. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't stop something like that. And the world is obsessed with rights and freedoms and what they're owed because they're gripped by love for themselves. Friends, when we, when we grip, when we hold so firmly to our rights and our freedoms and what we're owed, it's because we're ultimately gripped by a love for ourselves. And followers of Jesus are called to be obsessed with laying down our rights and letting go of what we're owed because we're gripped by love of Jesus. Hey, you might have valid reasons for the things that you're owed. And Jesus calls us to something more. Some of us are carelessly and, and maybe selfishly pursuing things that are putting obstacles in the way of others hearing and following Jesus and his gospel. We're called to thoughtfully and selflessly endure anything to clear the path to others hearing the gospel and seeing Jesus. Church, while, while we cling to our rights, we increasingly look like the world. In fact, we look indifferent to the world. We look so similar. We might not ever look more like Jesus than when we willingly lay down our rights. We might not ever look like Jesus than when we willingly lay down our rights for his glory, for the sake of others. So friends, what are you chasing? That's a big question. What are you sacrificing for? Well, let me ask this question. What do you deserve? What are your rights? What are you owed? And what does it look like to be overwhelmed by Jesus? We were praying in our community group last week, um, and uh, we were... Uh, talking about the sermon and and talking about where we're, where God might be calling us to lay down our rights. And and we're going around in a circle and praying, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just convicted. Convicted by how I view my time, and how, especially my weekends and my days off as a sacred time that's for my family, um, that I want to protect, that I guard zealously, that nothing else can break into. And as noble as that endeavor is, and it's noble, it's a, it's a good thing to want to spend time with my family and guard that time. I realized I was elevating my rights and what I felt like was owed to me, and my free, to, free time had turned into an idol that nothing else could come into. And so maybe you're like me. You're married with kids, and life is hectic. The house is constantly a war zone. It's disaster. Your margin is low. I feel you. I feel that almost every day. And you have all the rights in the world 
to just shut yourself away just to survive this season? But what would it look like to instead lay down your right for a chill night at home and instead rework your rhythms and your priorities around hosting people so that they might experience gospel community? Maybe you have an incredibly busy job. You're regularly working over 40 hours a week. You're exhausted. You, you barely have time to even check your phone at work. You already care really deeply about your family. In fact, that's why you're working so hard. You deserve rest. What would it look like to lay down your right for a break time, from time to time and come home and pull into your driveway, pray for grace and help from the Lord, and then walk into your hope and engage your family with undivided attention, undistracted presence. Maybe you're with people all day, every day, and that's not really your thing because you'd rather sit by yourself. And the evenings and the weekends are your only reprieve. They're, they're your safe haven. They're your one chance to catch your break, to enjoy yourself because you deserve some downtime. You're emotionally exhausted. What would it look like to lay down your rights from time to time and serve on a Sunday morning on one of our teams? Or for the discipleship of our children in one of our classrooms? Maybe you're close to retirement or you're already retired and you've worked hard. You've worked hard for decades. You've made sacrifices upon sacrifices that no one even knows about. Now is your time. Now is your time to enjoy the fruit of your labor. What would it look like to lay down your time to invest in the spiritual flourishing of your kids or your grandkids or the younger folks in this church? Listen, I could go on and on and on. I can give example upon example till I finally hit one that touches you. But I hope it stirs in you a vision for what laying down our freedoms could actually look like, a vision for that. Listen, I've got one, one last observation for us. One last observation for us. If you're, if you're reading this, you, you see that Paul is laying down his rights, but he lays down his rights as a reward, as a reward he gets. He doesn't say, look at everything I had to give up to follow Jesus. And so d- don't miss this. So often we, we can view following Jesus in terms of cost, right, in terms of what it cost us to follow Jesus, things that we had to give up. Right? We, we give up our uh, living for ourselves or living selfishly. We, give up, we had to give up uh, greed. We had to give up pornography. We had to give up drunkenness. We had to give up fun. We had to give up whatever to follow Jesus. And eventually, over time, following Jesus becomes an obligation and not a delight. And then over time, Christianity becomes a killjoy. And then this passage becomes confusing because you don't understand why Paul would be driven to give up a paycheck for the gospel. You're like, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand that. Following Jesus will feel cumbersome. I feel like you have to give up Sunday mornings or you have to give up nights of the week for community group and D group. It feels like you've got to walk a straight line and, and try not to be a square. It feels like you're going to have to be a super Christian and those are boring and kind of intense. But how does your mindset change if you see following Jesus not as a killjoy, not as cumbersome, but as delight. See, your life and your obedience to Jesus will change when you stop seeing it as a chore 
you start seeing it as joy. Uh, growing up, my parents dragged me uh, and my siblings everywhere, but I'm the only child, and there's a few years between me and my next sibling. And so I went with them everywhere. And so they often took me shopping, as parents do. This is, you know, before, uh, before you could order things online. And I hated it so much, right, because we'd go shopping for furniture, and I'd accompany my mom as we looked at bed sheets upon bed sheets and kitchen appliances, and I hated it. I hated trips every trip to Home Depot, right? It, it, it did not, it, I, I, I did not see how this, this affected me, right? I was not interested in lumber or in blenders or, you know, uh, sheets, and I could not think of anything that was more life-draining than shopping. And it got so bad, like, outside of, like, grocery shopping, right? Grocery shopping, there's some immediate, like, okay, you get this right now. You, you can eat this on the way out. But I hated so much that after college, um, I was living on my own, and I did everything I could to avoid shopping, uh, to avoid physically shopping, right? So if I could buy it online or if I could just get it cheap, uh, I, I did it, right? So I bought this living room furniture set that was, like, covered in stains, questionable stains, um, and just scratches and beat up. Everything was brown, right? Everything was just, just a shade of brown, um, and that was just my living room furniture. Um, I kid you not, I, I did not want to go into a mattress store, and so I went to Amazon and just found a mattress that had, like, this is before, this is before, like, mattresses online were a thing, right? Like, I, I went and just found one. I was like, okay, I'll buy this mattress, add to cart, um, that's how I bought my, my bed sheets, my towels, my uh, shower curtain, right? Everything was just like, okay, it's cheap, and I don't have to go look at it in person, done. Uh, and that was how my uh, house was, uh, that was how my house was decorated, right? It, I could not think of a bigger drain than to go to a store and go do that myself. And then I got a girlfriend. And then we got engaged. And then my sweet wife, Robin, now wife, saw my house and the things that I had and said, Bryce, I love you and I will not live in a frat house. And so we started looking at household items together, right? We, we, we had trips to Target and Crate and Barrel and we were looking at all these things and, and I, I wish this was like a fun pastor story, but it's not. Like truly my posture had changed. This thing that, that sucked the very life out of me had now turned into a delight because I loved someone. And I was imagining my future, imagining a, a home, right? Like I was willing to give up a Thursday evening, willing to give up a Saturday morning to go into these stores that I would not step into otherwise because I was filled with delight. I mean... I mean, I was looking at thread counts of sheets, right? Like, I, I, I think all my sheets were like polyester before that. I didn't know you had thread counts. I was giving my opinion on all sorts of different shades of paint color, right? Like, there's 19 different shades of white, and they all look the same. I can't tell the difference, but I lovingly gave my opinion on the difference between alabaster and oatmeal and all these things. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Sherwin-Williams is just pulling one on us. I don't think there's a difference. But I loved it. Because I was captivated by love. My heart had been captured by love and transformed. It transformed how I viewed everything. And it should not surprise you that we own none of the things that I owned before marriage. 
I'm the only thing that su survived pre, <laughs> pre-dating. Hey, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel like you were dragged to church by someone or by cultural Christianity because that's what you have to do. Can, can I offer that God is inviting you to more? God doesn't just want your rote obedience or your begrudging submission. He's offering you love. He's offering you future. He's offering you hope. He's offering you delight. And when you see Jesus as not just obligation, but as delight and joy and as the greatest fulfillment of your heart, your obedience changes and your mindset changes. Because you're not giving up your rights, you're gaining Jesus. You're not restricting your freedom, you're gaining a share in the joy of others hearing and knowing Jesus and the gospel going forward. That's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man who sells everything that he has and buys a field. Because he knows that what's in that field is treasure that you could not even imagine. That, that his entire life savings, all his wealth, could not compare to the treasure that's in that field. It's not a sacrifice when you realize what lays in front of you. And so let me end by reading another letter of Paul's. It's in Philippians. It's in Philippians, and Paul goes through and lists out all of his accomplishments, his whole life before following Jesus, and they're impressive. It's an impressive list. And then he says this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's why. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Frontline Church, my prayer for you and I this morning is that we would see the gospel for the treasure that it is. See Jesus for the immeasurable, incredible king that he is. We would savor the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Jesus, who did not count his rights, but emptied himself, who took on human form, didn't just lay down his rights, didn't just lay down his livelihood, but willingly lay down his life, his very life for us. And he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus.